Hi, this is Fred Ray, and this is One Take Territory. I've taken a little break here for a while while I uh, made a Christmas movie, probably the last film of the year for me. Uh, it was uh, a great little movie with uh, Tim Reed from WKRP in Cincinnati, and um, I think it's going to get a lot of exposure. It's for a certain network that I don't want to talk about at this point, uh, but it's going to, I think, get a, a fair amount of uh, publicity. <clears throat> Since I uh, did our last uh, little visit, a couple of things have happened. There have been the passing of uh, my friend Sid Haig and of uh, famous rock and roll drumming legend Ginger Baker. So I thought, you know what, let's, let's look back and uh, talk about uh, these guys a little bit today. Sid Haig was one of those guys that I always uh, saw in the drive-ins. You know, he was in a lot of Roger Corman movies, a lot of Filipino films like Wonder Women and uh, Beyond Atlantis. And uh, <clears throat> I was always uh, interested in working with Sid Haig. And when I did um, Commando Squad, I got it into my head that I wanted the villains to be guys from the old motorcycle-type movies and uh, 70s drive-in-type movies. Uh, that I had um, done uh, seen at the in my teenage years. So I got William Smith and I got Russ Tamblin from Satan Sadist. I got Ross Hagen from the Side Hackers, and uh, I wanted to get Sid Haig. Now at the time, and this would I think be 1987ish or 86, somewhere in there. <clears throat> Uh, Sid Haig wasn't acting anymore. He had basically uh, taken a break uh, or retired or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I got a hold of him and he came, he came in. And you know, Sid, a lot of people didn't realize that Sid, um, Sid was a clinical hypnotist. And uh, he went under the name of Sid Mohassian Haig. And he would hypnotize people, you know, to make them stop smoking or lose weight or whatever it was. And he had a big parrot, a big McCall. And I'm pretty sure he lived in Simi Valley, which is not far from here. So I was working at Transworld Entertainment, and Sid came in, and he had no beard, and he had hair. And uh, we chatted a little bit because uh, uh, of the different things. And um, I said, Sid, you know, I'd like you to do this movie, but I need you to shave your head and grow a beard. He said, Fred, I can't, can't grow a beard that fast. I said, do the best you can. And so he did. And um, he played one of the, the bad guys. <clears throat> and there was a scene where um, he was supposed to come down a dock, I think, at Lake Castaic. And he was supposed to get hit and fall in the water. And he came up to me and he said, you know, Fred, he goes, uh, he goes I'm not really big on falling in the water. I said, well, it's, it's not very deep here, Sid. He goes, yeah, but there might be crabs down there. He goes, I'm terrified of crabs, crabs and spiders. I said, oh. I said, well, I don't think there are any crabs. It's a freshwater lake. I said, I don't, I don't think there's a big problem. I really don't want to do this. I said, well, just jump in and go under and just come right back up. And you can get right back on the dock. And he went, man, man, man. And he was talking, started talking about Beyond Atlantis. He said there was a pit in that movie full of crabs. And he said it just, just freaked him out. He could barely stand it. But he did the shot, and it was pretty cool. And uh, he started telling me about the Philippines and how they would pay you 
in uh, cash for your per diem. And the per diem is what they give you, you know, to buy your dinner and take a taxi somewhere or whatever. It's a daily stipend that they, they give you when you're on location. They still do today. And Sid said, you know, that, that um, everything was so cheap, they would just stuff the cash like in a shoebox under their bed. And uh, if they needed clothes, they would have a tailor come over to the hotel uh, and they would, um, they would have a tailor make, hand make their clothes for them. They said they, they had so much money from this per diem. And, uh, and, uh, and he said that one time a guy took him to a, um, what do you call it, a, a village. And they told him outside this hut to stick his head underneath the edge of this hut and look inside the hut. So he got down on the ground and he stuck his head through this <laughs> thing underneath the hut. And there's a guy in there, like a witch doctor or whatever. And he had a bowl of like blood. I mean, pig blood, cow blood. I don't know what kind of blood it was, but it was mixed with the thing that Sid called uh, beetle nuts, which was sort of almost a hallucinogenic. And uh, when he stuck his head under there, they offered him this drink and he drank this blood with beetle nuts in, <laughs> in it. And he said it was, it, was, it was the highest he'd ever been in his whole life. But he was a very sweet guy and a very even-tempered guy. And uh, he wanted to direct. He wanted to direct. And we made a movie later called Warlords with David Carradine. And almost the whole movie took place at Vasquez Rocks. <clears throat> And um, I wanted Sid to play the warlord. Now he, now he looked like the Sid Haig that we all remember. He had the bald head and he had the big beard and all that stuff. Um, and we said, okay, let's do this movie. And Sid said, I really want, can I direct something? And I said, yeah, okay. And we, we let him go and we let him direct the um, drive-bys, I think, of the, what was the tank from Hell Comes to Frogtown. They had made this tank on some type of a vehicle and it had a turret and a, and a, a, a cannon. And uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown was a movie that was made around my movie, Deep Space. And I remember they had come to my set. Don Jackson was a very good friend of mine. And he'd come to my set uh, when we were filming at the Iron Foundry in Vernon, which is where the end of that movie, Deep Space, takes place. And Don walked around there, and I believe they actually shot part of Hell Comes to Frogtown in that location after he saw it. And he went around, and he literally made deals with my crew to work for him on uh, that movie. And that movie had a story of its own. And I guess they brought out a Blu-ray of it recently, and I think it goes back to a time when Don may have done, a, I guess, a commentary track, because Don's not been with us for some time now. But I thought I saw somewhere that there was a commentary track. But one of the things that they did, which I'm sure is not part of the commentary, is they went to Don and they told Don that they wanted him to have a co-director. They didn't really trust him to believe it, believe it or not, uh, to direct this movie. And they put this guy on with Don to uh, co-direct. And they decided that the first guy would direct the first week and then Don would direct the second week, sort of like that. And, uh, and then before it all started, they tried to buy him out, just to buy him off the movie. And he came to me, he said, Fred, what would you do if you were me? I said, Don, if they want you out, they'll find a way. I said, if I was you, I would simply get a great producing credit, story credit, take the money and use it to make another film, I said, or make part of the deal that they would finance 
another film for you. And he didn't want to do that. So I said, okay, that's my advice. So he started out in the first week. And when the second week came along, they wouldn't let him direct uh, the show, as I recall. They uh, let him off to the, do second unit work. And he went around and he did other things, you know, maybe frog guys falling off of Vasquez rocks or whatever it was. But I know it was not a very happy experience for him, but I think he did retain some sequel remake rights because I know he made another Frogtown movie with uh, Lou Ferrigno. And I went down and visited that set and um, Lou Ferrigno had green spots painted on his face and they were shooting in a building near McCadden and Hollywood Boulevard. It had very low ceilings. It wasn't a studio, it was an office building that was empty or for rent. And they were building the sets in what was basically a room with an eight foot ceiling. It was very unusual. And I thought maybe Tanya York was somehow involved in that. I can't remember. But I know he did do, do that. So anyway, we did Warlords and um, it's a great little film and I would love to see it um, come out on DVD or Blu-ray. The one that is out there now is a pirate version. It's a pirate version taken from a VHS tape. So, you know, buyer beware if you see a VHS of uh, Warlords floating around. So on to Ginger Baker. <clears throat> Dan Golden, um, who plays the drums and is a good friend of mine, um, came to me at one point. He had an idea to make an instructional drum video with Ginger Baker. So they, he wanted me to produce it, he would direct it, and we would put the money up jointly. And uh, I think we formed a little company called Golden Ray, that might have been the name of it. So we went out to see Ginger Baker, who lived off the 14 Freeway, which is out toward Vasquez Rocks. And we pull up to the house, and I said to Dan, I said, Dan, I know this house. This is the house where we shot scalps. Years earlier, we had met a family called the Alfreys, and they generously allowed us to run electrical cables from their house, and we put up the uh, tent, and this is where the kids had their base camp, and we filmed a great portion of scalps on the uh, Alfreys property, but now Ginger Baker was living in this house. I thought it was the most unusual, weird coincidence. The only difference was that Ginger, who was big into pony, uh, polo ponies, uh, he had put up some stables. And he had some stables out there and he had polo ponies. So we go in, we hang out with Ginger for an afternoon, talked about what we want to do and what our plans are. And he's sitting there and he's smoking cigarettes, chain smoking cigarettes. And he, he didn't use an ashtray and he wouldn't get up. So he would throw them across the room. He would flick the cigarette butt across the room and try to get it to land in his fireplace. And he must have been pretty good at it because there were thousands of cigarette butts piled up in his fireplace. And we talked to him a little bit and we made a deal. And we took out a studio, which was, I think, an, an Arab or Middle Eastern TV station. And on a Saturday or Sunday, you could rent their studio and it had the control booth and the cameras and the whole bit. And I think it was out somewhere near Santa Monica. So we went and we sat up there and we shot um, the, the instructional drum video there and Brink Stevens, I think, came in and she was like a production assistant or something and she worked on it too. And, um, and now Ginger was hollowing out his cigarettes. He would hollow out half the cigarette 
leaving sort of an empty paper sleeve, which he would then stuff with marijuana. So he was smoking a half marijuana, half tobacco cigarette as he was um, playing the, the drums. And uh, it, was, it was surreal, to, to be short. And I think we used songs from... He had a band, currently a band called... I think it was called, it was called Masters of Reality, I believe, or Masters of Something. And we made a deal to use some of the songs like Ants in the Kitchen and a couple of other things. And uh, Dan pointed out to me that, that our use of them in this um, uh, drum video was their first publication. And Dan said, that means, that makes us the publishers of, this, of these songs. And I don't know what the implication of that was, but um, that, he, he, he placed some uh, stock in that. So we made a deal with a place called Hot Licks uh, Video, and, and you know it was enough money that we would get our money back, Ginger would get some money, blah, blah, blah. But they've never paid a royalty or reported in all these years, and I know we just recently, in the last six months, dug out our contracts, and we may go, we may go and try to settle the score with these guys. But uh, Ginger was a, was a lovely guy, and uh, very talented, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm glad he lived to 70. He always looked old to me, uh, to find out that he was only three or four years older than my mother um, was surprising because my mom was one of those people who was like always, um, you know, those darn hippies, blah, blah, blah. And I found out that she was only five years older than John Lennon and only four years older than Ginger Baker. So anyway, this has been uh, Fred Ray's uh, One Take Territory. And we'll be back a little bit more frequently as the year goes on. And I've got an announcement of a project that we're about to release. And we'll be talking about that probably next time.